Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, March 3rd, 2019, on the basis of Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. It took 10 whole days, but then at last, finally, help arrived. You might remember from this past summer that there was a story that dominated headlines and captivated people's attention for the better part of two weeks, and that was the story of this soccer team that got trapped in a cave over in Thailand. On June 23rd of this past year, a soccer team, 12 young players and one coach, walked into the mouth of this cave as part of an after-practice excursion of sorts. But unfortunately, once they were in the cave, there were some unexpected seasonal floodwaters that filled up the cave, and as a result, they were trapped inside. In fact, they had to keep retreating farther and farther into the cave in search of high ground until finally they found this small rocky ledge where all of them could sit, where the water could not touch them. And there they sat, two and a half miles from the entrance of the cave, a thousand feet underground with nothing but limestone above them. They had no food. They had less and less oxygen, which with each and every breath that they took, They were surrounded by complete and total darkness, and there they sat for 10 days until finally from those dark, murky waters beneath their feet emerged a light, a rescue diver that had made it all the way to that part of the cave. And when he emerged from the water, much to his surprise, I know the picture is a little bit blurry. It's the little camera sitting on the front of his forehead. There they were, this soccer team huddled together. I'm guessing that you've never experienced anything quite that dramatic in your life. And so you'd probably think to yourself that you've never experienced anything quite like that soccer team felt when suddenly, at long last, rescue appeared from those dark and murky waters. And yet, what we've been talking about for the past several weeks here in church would really suggest otherwise. During the season of the church year known as Epiphany, we've been looking at episodes from the early days of Jesus' time as a public figure, his public ministry here on earth. And each and every one of those episodes has taught us the very same thing, that first of all, Jesus himself, when he walked this earth, was far from home. And so as a result, all those who belong to his kingdom are also the very same thing, far from home. Now, if that's the case, then the episode that we're going to look at today sort of represents a very important turning point in the ministry of Jesus. If it is, in fact, true that Jesus was far from home, and as a result, so are we, then the episode that we're looking at today is sort of the very first time that Jesus began to reveal the way out, when he began to show his disciples his plan for escape. It wasn't something that they suddenly discovered at the bottom of a deep, dark cave. Instead, as you just heard in today's gospel, they discovered it on the top of a very high mountain. But really, the lesson was the same. What Jesus told his disciples and what we get as we look at these verses from Luke chapter 9, really the very same thing. We are going to see that, yes, we are far from home, and Jesus is here to get us out. I suppose the first question that we need to ask one more time is, do we really want him to? I'm guessing when that rescue diver appeared from the waters, he didn't really need to sell the soccer team on the idea that the plan was to get them out of the cave. But, but maybe at times we in our lives need a little bit more convincing. And that's not at all surprising because so did Jesus' disciples, and especially this disciple of Jesus named Peter. 
You see, since Jesus' disciples had been following him, they had witnessed the very same miracles that we've talked about in the past several weeks. They had heard the very same sermons that Jesus preached that we've been talking about. And yet, they were still fully convinced that Jesus was a king who came to establish a kingdom here on this earth. In other words, that it was a king and a kingdom with thrones and with crowns and with royal treasuries and with scepters and great wealth, not only for Jesus, but also for his followers. And now, for the very first time, Jesus began to be very clear with them that that was not the case. That was not the plan. Instead, the plan was for him to be rejected, for him to be arrested, for him to suffer many great things, and then ultimately for him to be put to death on a cross and then to rise from the dead. And they didn't like to hear that plan, especially Peter. And so Jesus' revelation of that plan sort of set off this little back-and-forth debate between Jesus and Peter over what exactly the plan needed to be. Well, then Luke tells us that eight days later, eight days after this little dispute had arisen, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of a very high mountain, and there he was transfigured. Those little glimpses of glory that the disciples had seen up until this point were suddenly fully revealed. Jesus' face became brilliant. His clothes became as white as lightning. There were two heroes from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, who also appeared in glory beside him. And then there was this cloud of glory that completely surrounded them. And so Peter sees all of this take place and he thinks, now this is what I'm talking about. This is what I like to see. Jesus, this is where we need to stay. In fact, Jesus, let me put up three tents, three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. That way we never have to come down from this mountain. The reality is that with those sights and sounds on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus wasn't saying something different from what he had just been telling his disciples. In fact, he was communicating the very same thing. Did you catch what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about? On top of the mountain, they were talking about his departure, his exit strategy, his way out, the very same thing that he had been talking about with his disciples. And then when the Father spoke, just like he had spoken at Jesus' baptism, he started by making a statement about Jesus. He said, this is my son. But then he added a command. Listen to him. When Jesus tells you that you are far from home, when Jesus tells you that this is not the place that you want to stay forever, when Jesus tells you that this is the way out, the Father says. Listen to him. That's an important lesson for us to hear. I think one more time as we bring this season of the church here known as Epiphany to a close. Call me crazy, I think that most often in life we don't picture ourselves sort of like that soccer team huddled up together in this very small space that can't support our lives for very long, where danger is all around us at all times. Instead, we feel pretty comfortable pretty much at ease, pretty much at home in this life. And so as a result, all of our attention, all of our focus, all of our energy and effort go toward making this life as cushy and as comfortable as we possibly can. And yet what we've seen for the past several weeks is just the opposite of that. In the miracles Jesus performed, we've seen how there are joys and delights in his kingdom that are far greater than any that we could possibly find here in this life. We've seen how Jesus came to permanently undo the brokenness that we so often struggle under in this life. We've seen how in Jesus' kingdom, the rules by necessity must work the exact opposite of the way things work here on this earth. 
that Jesus can't possibly in his kingdom work with our strengths. And Jesus can't possibly in his kingdom treat us the way that we deserve. Instead, he must do just the opposite. Because at the end of the day, even our greatest strength doesn't amount to anything at all. And if Jesus gave us what we deserve, we'd be in big, big trouble. And so we need to be once again reminded we are far from home. Now, some might argue that if that's the case, that's no way to live life. That if you spend your entire life only thinking about how you're eventually going to get out, it's going to take all the fun out of life and you're going to let life pass you right by. Believe it or not, the opposite is just the case. It's kind of interesting when those rescue divers discovered those boys in that cave. As you might imagine, it took a while for them to kind of formulate and bring together the rescue plan, how they're going to get them out. And so the boys ended up spending almost as much time huddled together on that rock after they had been discovered as before they had been discovered. But let me ask, which of those two periods of time do you think was better for those boys and easier for those boys? The time before they were discovered or the time after? I think it's pretty easy to imagine that it would be the time after, right? And yes, that's in part because they were brought food and oxygen and blankets to keep warm. But I think there was one thing that was far more important than any of that. When that rescue diver emerged from the water, they were brought hope. As soon as they saw him, they knew that they were going to get out. And so the remainder of their time on that rocky ledge was much, much easier. In the very same way when Jesus tells us that we are far from home and that he is here to get us out, what he brings us is hope. And far from making our lives worse, hope actually makes our lives far, far better. Because you and I have hope, the good things in our lives, things like our comfy leather sofas and our big screen TVs and our vacations on the beach and our glorious mountain top views, all of those things can be just that. They can be good things that we enjoy, that we're thankful for. Good things, not ultimate things, not the best things. Because we have hope, we can know at any given moment that as good as life gets, and let's be honest, sometimes it gets pretty good, someday it's going to get so much better. Maybe even more importantly than that, when life is full of bad things, like cancer diagnoses and job losses and unexpected bills and eternal winters in the upper Midwest, we can know with absolute certainty that those are just bad things. They aren't crushing things. They aren't soul-sucking, soul-destroying things. We can know with absolute certainty that as bad as life gets, and let's be honest, sometimes it gets really bad, one day it's going to get so much better. Because Jesus tells us that he is here to get us out, he brings us hope. And so when he delivers that message to us, just like the Father encouraged those disciples to do, listen to him. Okay, so what's the plan? How do we get out? As you can imagine, once those boys were discovered in the cave, that was kind of the big question. How do we get them out? Because they had retreated so far into the cave and because the waters had risen so high, there were actually only a small handful of cave divers in the entire world who could even get to the boys. So how in the world are they supposed to get those 13 people out when some of them didn't even know how to swim? Well, there was one man in particular who was sort of the key to the rescue plan. His name was Dr. Richard Harris. 
And Dr. Richard Harris had a combination of two very unique and very different skill sets in one person that sort of made him a bit of a rare bird. In fact, I read one article that referred to him as a unicorn, one of a kind. Maybe he was the only man in the entire world who could have been a part of the rescue plan for those boys. And here's why. You see, because the situation was so treacherous, the boys couldn't help at all. In fact, any effort or any movement on their part was only going to hurt the operation. And so here's the plan they came up with. First, they gave each of the boys a Xanax to calm their nerves. And then, oh, I should have mentioned, so Dr. Richard Harris, not only world-class cave diver, but also anesthesiologist. So they gave him a Xanax to calm their nerves, and then Dr. Richard Harris injected them with, and now I'm going to forget the name of the drug that he gave them, but it knocked them out cold. And so then, one by one, they strapped the boys with ropes to two expert cave divers, two of the very few men in the world who could actually navigate through those passageways, and completely helpless, completely motionless, those boys were brought out to safety. When the situation is dire, the escape plan needs to be drastic. In fact, the rescue team knew that this plan was going to be a little bit controversial, drugging up and knocking out a bunch of boys, and so they didn't alert the media to this part of the plan. In fact, they didn't even tell their parents. So Jesus is here to bring us out. What's the plan? Well, Luke tells us, after all of these fireworks, after all of these displays of glory, Luke tells us that the disciples looked up and they saw Jesus. Just Jesus. Just as he had been. All of that glory needed to go away once again. All of that glory needed to be hidden once again between frail, ordinary human flesh and blood. Contrary to Peter's wishes, they needed to come down from the mountain because Jesus needed to climb another mountain. And this time, not with any disciples, not even with three of them, he needed to climb that mountain alone. Any effort, any help from anyone else would have only hurt the operation. When a situation is truly dire, the escape plan needs to be drastic. And so, yes, Jesus needed to be rejected. He needed to suffer. He needed to die. But by doing so, he brought about an escape far greater than getting out of a cave two and a half miles from the entrance, surrounded by a thousand feet of limestone. Jesus kicked open the door of his own casket. Jesus knocked down the impenetrable walls of the grave. Now, it's probably not a surprise for you to hear that that was the plan for Jesus. What we really need to hear today and what we need to be reminded of is that that's the plan for us as well. That just as the disciples looked up, so also with us, the plan that God holds before our eyes is Jesus. Just Jesus. All by himself. Jesus doesn't come, Jesus doesn't show up to work together with us. He doesn't show up to lend us a hand or give us a little pat on the back. He doesn't show up for cooperation or teamwork. No, he shows up to work alone. Because any effort or any help from us will only hurt the operation. And then just as was the case with Jesus, once again, all of the power, all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the bright fireworks, they all need to be put away and they all need to be hidden. In Jesus' case, they were hidden beneath ordinary human flesh and blood. In our case, God hides all of that glory in what we call the means of grace. In fact, we might even view those means of grace as the ropes that tie us to Jesus, the ropes that connect us to him, the ropes that ensure that as he works his way out, so also we get to ride on his coattails. In fact, we heard a couple of weeks ago how baptism 
is sort of like when that rope is first initially connected and those knots initially tied. Baptism is the means through which the Holy Spirit ties us to Jesus. We know that the Word of God and the sacrament of, the Holy, Communion, of, of Holy Communion are the other two means of grace that keep that rope, that keep that connection between us and Jesus strong. Because we're connected to Jesus, might, we might not always see everything that we would expect to see. Once again, all the glory needs to be hidden away. So it's not like it's going to make us all the time feel drastically different or better. It's not like all of a sudden our life is going to change and we're going to experience things that are completely different. It's not as if suddenly all troubles in life aren't going to affect us or everything's going to go our way. No, instead, the path of someone connected to Jesus and the path of someone who's not connected to Jesus, believe it or not, eventually end up in the same place. They end up in the ground. They end up in the grave. But the difference, of course, is that for someone who's connected to Jesus, that path is not the end. In fact, that path is just the way out. And so if Jesus is really here to get us out, if he's the only way of escape, then the implications are obvious, aren't they? Whatever you do, don't let go. God himself has tied us to Jesus, bound us to him through holy baptism. Jesus, God himself has told us how that connection stays strong. So whatever you do, don't cut yourself off. Don't let go of that rope. This last Sunday in the season of Epiphany known as Transfiguration also marks a very important transition into the next season of the church here, the season known as Lent. A time when that plan that Jesus introduces today is actually carried out. Lent is a very important season of the church year, and so do you know what we're going to do? Right here in this very same spot, right at this very same time, next Sunday, 10 o'clock, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to have church. Just like we do every single Sunday, we're going to gather here around those means of grace, around God's word and his sacraments to strengthen our connection to Jesus. Do you know what else we're going to do during Lent? On Wednesdays, we're going to have a special service that focuses on what Jesus did for our salvation, this escape plan, his suffering and death on the cross. And then come Holy Week, the week where we actually remember those events that happened, we're going to have two more special services, Holy Thursday and Good Friday. I know... I think as well as anyone else knows that making time for those extra opportunities to hear God's word isn't always convenient. But then again, I think it's fair to say that all of the important things in life are rarely convenient. I know that weeks are already busy and that evenings are tough. I know that there's lots of other things to do. I know that it comes at the end of a long day. I know that there's homework and there's meals, and there's bedtime, and there's sports practices, and music lessons. I know all of those things, and all of those would be perfectly wonderful reasons to not make extra time to be in God's house and to be around God's word if, if we were already home. If this were home. If this life, with our jobs, and our activities, and our trophies, and our grades, and all of those things were the pinnacle of our existence. Instead of just wonderful blessings that God gets us, God allows us to enjoy as we're making our way out. All of that would make perfect sense if, in fact, we were home. But of course, we're not. 
And so I don't hesitate to say for a second that there is nothing more important and there's no better use of any of our time than making extra time to be in God's word, to strengthen that connection between us and Jesus. When the situation is dire, the escape plan has to be drastic. And so there's nothing better that we can possibly do than hang on to Jesus, knowing full well that he's our way out. When the situation is dire, the escape plan needs to be drastic, like giving a bunch of teenage boys a Xanax and drugging them and knocking them out. And yet when those boys were given that escape plan, they were also given a promise. They were told, don't worry, this pill's going to make you feel a little bit funny, but when you wake up, you'll be free. In the very same way, because our situation is so dire, the rescue plan that God gives us doesn't always match our expectations. And yet there is nothing more important than holding on to Jesus. Not only does he give us that command, but he also gives us a promise that as we hold on to him through every treacherous turn in life, that as we hold on to him all the way into our own graves, that one day we too will wake up. And then we'll be free. In fact, we'll be home. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.